This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Alison McGovern. She's been a Labour MP for 10 years and is the Shadow Minister for Sport. And Alison is one of those people, um, during the during the five years uh, preceding Keir Starmer's leadership, when it felt like both major parties weren't necessarily being led by their brightest and best, and people would say to me, well, where's the talent in politics then? Alison McGovern would always be top of that list. In, 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 certainly on the Labour side, I'd say Alison McGovern, Peter Carl, and list off all these wonderful, talented people. So it's brilliant to finally get Alison on the show. And we have a great chat. Um, she's a big Liverpool fan. She's also uh, plays five-a-side football herself for the women's parliamentary football team. We talk about that. Um, but also, so many other things as well. She was chair of the... I didn't expect her to talk about this for so long, but she was chair of the advisory committee on works of art. And... Rather naively, I hadn't quite appreciated um, how political, or I probably hadn't considered how political um, the art in Parliament is and, uh, you know, what gets commissioned and what doesn't and what it's important to show. So that's a really fascinating part of the conversation I didn't think we were going to necessarily talk about for uh, a long time. She talks about being a whip um, during that hung Parliament and what it actually involves, uh, as well as talking about... um, Women in Politics, Why Labour's Never Had a Female Leader, um, but also about a, a fantastic article she wrote for Grazia that you may have seen earlier this week, and if you haven't, I've put a link to it um, in the blurb, um, just about her, her own perception of her body and and um, her mental health as it relates to that. But also, the whole conversation really is about sport, uh, physical health, mental health, um, and, uh, you know, how you can improve both and how they are entirely linked and aren't two separate things. Um, so this is uh, this is such a good chat with someone who is one of the most talented politicians in the country and someone that um, I know a lot of people in the Labour Party would love to see as leader one day. So um, hopefully we've got Alison on um, and in years to come you'll say, oh my God, 
the first long proper interview I heard of Alison McGovern was on the Political Party podcast before she became Prime Minister. Who knows what happens? But uh, I began by Alison, asking Alison, who was a diehard Liverpool fan, whether um, seeing Liverpool win the league but behind closed doors was bittersweet. No. <laughs> um, I have to be really, really honest. It was not. And also, I think some people in the media tried to do this whole 30 years of hurt thing. And, you know, I just like lads, seriously, like those those Champions League wins, they didn't hurt at all. Um, uh, and, you know, we've been in finals and uh, I've, I've seen my team in that time, you know, win at the Millennium Stadium, win at loads of places and so it wasn't 30 years of hurt and I think what was amazing was um, coming to that point and obviously the season being you know suspended and then restarted yeah of course like we'd, I'd, I'd have loved to have been at Anfield and we had a we had a parade last year for the European Cup and I mean it was quite a large party <laughs> <laughs> so so you can only imagine but the thing is you can't complain as a Liverpool supporter. It would be crazy. You know, global pandemic, that was what was distressing and upsetting. You know, it's like, I think Jurgen Klopp has brought this kind of new spirit of sort of like chilled outness to Liverpool fans. We're all like, you know, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's just football. We're just like the absolute best. <laughs> Is it, as a, as a Liverpool supporting MP um, in that part of the world, with the shadow brief that you hold, I mean, that, that could open doors. Have you been able to meet Jurgen Klopp or Andy Robertson or Virgil van Dijk? I, I do you know, I haven't. I haven't. <gasps> and I think, it would be re- I think it would be really weird to do so because I think I would, I sort of wouldn't know what to say. Like, I, Jurgen Klopp occasionally does say quite political things and I'm already, always really glad when he does because he's really really progressive you know I think he's said like he's a social democrat you know he's he's on the left and and he always votes left and that and that's great but I think I'd just be like I think he's probably the one person that I'd just be a bit speechless for me I don't know what I'd say to him where's the teeth more than anything (laughs) blinded by the teeth the amazing teeth what is that what is that I think they all go to the same teeth person in uh in Formby (laughs) They do actually, don't they? Firmino, wasn't it Bobby Firmino? It was Firmino yeah. that made uh, Klopp want to go there. I've seen videos of it. Yeah. But um, see, if I, was, if I was an MP and being a Forest fan, if we were doing well, I would be using my position to be getting like, behind the scenes all the time. So it's um, a reflection would of your you? character that you haven't tried uh, to I don't know. flag stuff. I met, I met Kenny Dalgleish at Labour Party conference many years ago. Um, he was doing a thing for the FA at Labour Party conference. And this must have been about 2001, 2002. Um, and, and I was completely like speechless. I was obviously a lot younger then, but I was quite speechless. Um, and and I, I asked him, would he ever come back and manage Liverpool again? And this was like long before um, uh, events. And, and he didn't say no. So I always felt like, okay, wow. And then lo and behold, he did come back. So, But yeah, I don't, I, I think Jürgen's amazing. Um, I think he's absolutely amazing, but uh, yeah, I'm just in awe. You're on the parliamentary women's football team. You got in trouble a couple of years ago for having a kickabout uh, in the House of Commons. You, Hannah Bardell, Lou Haig, um, Stephanie Peacock. Um, the only footage I saw of it was Hannah Bardell doing keepy uppies. She looked 
pretty handy. Is, is she the kind of, is she the star of the side? Uh, yeah, she's good. She's really good. Um, she's good. Uh, Tracy's good. Tracy Crouch is good. Uh, Rosanna Allen Khan is pretty good. Um, they're kind of, Tracy's very much a sort of like striker. Some, you know, I wouldn't say goal hanger. <laughs> <laughs> but she does like to score. Uh, yeah, Han- Hannah's, Hannah's really good. Um, it was a funny evening that because we were supposed to play our first game and votes got in the way and we were pretty irritated. So um, we were just kind of like going to take a picture and then I forget who said like, oh, let's just, you know, bring some balls. <laughs> and then one thing led to another. John, John Burko did sort of tell us off, but he told us off in a very, um, what's, what's the word? He told us off in a way that obviously he was quite supportive of our endeavours to make the point that women should play football too. So it was, it was all good. And how often do you play and, and who would you play against? So we play, we train on Tuesday mornings and we, at the moment we play in a five-a-side league on Monday nights and we've been getting absolutely hammered because <laughs> the, people, the other teams in the league are like really quite good and also quite a lot younger than us. Um, so we have like journalists from the lobby who play with us um, and like lots of different people in and around Westminster. Uh, we, and, you know, we're training, but like we obviously haven't been training as long and are quite a bit older than others. So, we've, yeah, we've been hammered. Monday night. But you know, we're, we're trying. It's good that you're playing people sort of around that world. It's not like you're just going down to a, a power league somewhere and there's loads of people going, Are they? I think they might be members of parliament because they go yeah, in on your double league. We do, we do. We play in a power league. Oh man. But, but with, but like in your own league that you've set up with other Westminster types, you're not playing like. No, no, we all. So the men's parliamentary football team traditionally it's just MPs and they play like the press or others yeah. but we bring everybody together so we play with the journalists on the same side which is actually really good because if if you think about the way that Westminster is structured often women can be relatively isolated so there is a kind of method in the madness in that it helps people to have a bit of a network and particularly if you know other members MPs staff We've got quite a lot of MP staff who play with us or, you know, younger, newer women journalists who are looking for contacts and that kind of thing. It's actually really helpful for them to be part of the football team and get to know people in a really informal and friendly way rather than Westminster where often if you're a woman and you go on along to a networking event and you're the only woman in the room, that's not so great. So no. it provides that kind of um, space for women to kind of chat about stuff and kick a ball around and have a laugh. And if, if Tracy Crouch is the star striker, how would you rate your own <laughs> performance? What, how would you describe yourself as a footballer? Um, well, you know, I, I obviously aspire to Virgil van Dijk levels of defensive elegance and grace. Um, it, it occasionally is a little bit more Tommy Smith. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I, I like to play in defence. Um, uh, and yeah, it's getting better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because one of the, one of the things that um, you know, football is a good thing for bringing people together, uh, not just across party lines, but within parties. Because John McDonnell is a big Liverpool fan. Um, he is, yep. So, did you ever go to games together? Would you bump into each other at Anfield pre-COVID? Um, we we haven't ever been to a game together. Undoubtedly, we've been at, at Anfield. 
at the same at the same game because um, John does go the game. Um, but yeah, no, it's there's a actually there's you know it's quite a lot of Liverpool fans um, <laughs> as listeners to this podcast who support the teams will uh, be aware. Um, but um, yeah, like so John uh, McDonald, but also like Gavin Barwell on the Tory side, who used to be Theresa May's chief of staff as a big red. There's 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 quite a lot. So. Yeah, it kind of brings people together, doesn't it? I mean, you, you know this from all, all the stuff that you do in football. It's 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 an incredible thing for getting people talking about stuff. And like, what is it about football that's so compelling? It's partly the simplicity of the game. It's partly the kind of the elegance of the thing. It's partly the excitement of it, you know, 90 minutes of intensity. But yeah, I love it. So was it ever a bridge for you and McDonald? You know, at the, at the height of the of the internal warfare over Corbyn's leadership at PLP meetings, you know, would, would you and John ever see each other and go, you, know, you put party political differences aside or internal party political differences aside and say, bloody hell, what happened at the weekend? Was there ever a kind of, was that ever a kind of connection that, that could be leveraged? Um, yeah, although I never, I've never fallen out with John McDonald. To, I mean, there was a, there was a moment where he said some things about progress members that wasn't so great, but like I, I'd never like fallen out with him. And we did quite a bit of work at different points on social security and child poverty. But it's one of those things where there's basically in Westminster, there's basically like people who do people who are genuinely interested in the football who will talk to you about it and you'll pass them in the corridor. And like, and John would definitely be one of those people who I would pass in the corridor and say, you know, what did you think of uh, Salah's goal last night? Wasn't it great? Blah, blah, blah. When Andy Burnham used to be in, in the Commons, obviously it was the opposite. Like, you know, if, if Liverpool ever lost, honest, the first person to text me. <laughs> what a rotter. Um, I mean, you say about McDonald's comments about progress. He said they were pursuing a hard right agenda. Which, yeah, not um, so much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's sort of odd when the right of the party gets called hard right, because I think it's probably born out of a frustration of the hard left being called the hard left, so they kind of want to retaliate in kind. But it always seems odd to describe the right of the Labour Party. I mean, you could perhaps describe the right of some other parties as being hard right, but progress, <laughs> not pursuing so really, a hard right agenda. Yeah, that's, that, it, to me, that is, a, that is, you know, that is an offensive thing. Um, but actually, I sort of reject that whole the right of the party um, thing. You know, I'm a progressive politician. Um, you know, I believe that the future holds more opportunity for us than the past did. And I think that, you know, our values of inequality and solidarity are what will make the future good. I'm a progressive politician. There is absolutely nothing right wing about me. And I won't have it said. How hard has it been being a, a progress person, you know, involved in progress, the kind of, I mean, I know we don't like labels, but the kind of remnants of the, the, the Blairite era, the, that, the progressive wing of the party, the, the, the not the hard left bit, <laughs> we want to label it. How hard has that been an, until the election of Keir Starmer, the sort of last five or ten years? I mean, it's relative, right? Like, I... Obviously, didn't vote for Jeremy Corbyn to use the Labour Party, obviously, and had my questions and doubts. But the big, the big problem is not having a Labour government. Like, no, no one should feel sorry for Labour MPs. They should just ask us 
how we're going to get a Labour government, you know. And yeah, it's it's not it's not been easy. And you know, there've been real times where I've felt kind of like devastated and ashamed of things that have happened, particularly obviously uh, in relation to anti-Semitism, um, but other things. But that just means that there's a responsibility to put it right. You know, I don't feel sorry for myself. I feel determined. Yes, I, I mean, I, t- I take the point, but in the world in which we live, and particularly given the last few years and, and the abuse that some people got, um, there are some MPs that have been deserving of sympathy, really, because the, the way they've been treated has been so bad. I mean, I'm sure you've had uh, a- abuse. Um, does it ever get to you? Um, no, no. Like, kind of... Um, I obviously never experienced the the onslaught, you know, that Ruth Smith, Luciana Berger and, and others. I never received that onslaught. And so I have, as you said, like I've got a lot of sympathy and empathy with them and it was wrong. Um, but um, I don't, you know, if people want to argue with me politically, that's absolutely fine. That's my job. Like, crack on. We'll see who wins. <laughs> but, um, but uh you know, I don't, I don't feel sorry for myself about politics. You know, I, I chose to do this job. But how hard was it, you know, wanting a Labour government, wanting Labour to be in a particular place and, and represent a particular set of values that had not seen that realised? Must have been very frustrating. And obviously, we had the Independent Group for Change, uh, or whatever it is they ended up being called, leaving. Were you ever tempted at that point, you know, when it was really at its peak, when Luciana was getting all the, all the grief and everything else was going on and the rows around Brexit and Corbyn's intransigence on the issue. And, and then obviously Labour MPs are starting to say, well, look, some of us are off. Did it ever cross your mind to go? No, no. And I had to sort of like work out why, because um, I think other people in the PLP used to describe me as tribally Labour. And, you know, that... I, I knew that I wasn't going to leave because I believe in the Labour Party, but like, I don't, I sort of took issue with the idea that I was Labour because like, it was like a football team, you know, like I'd always been like, your political party is not a football team. You know, it, it's, it's a question of your morals and your beliefs and, and what you want to achieve. And I suppose the question for me was if a new party is created, what what will that be what's that what is that political project or that idea and um i felt that if a group of members of parliament came together left the labor party maybe joined with others from other parties they would be essentially a group of westminster politicians quite elite westminster politicians that would they might put forward progressive policies but they would be missing the whole idea of genuinely progressive politics, which is to say there are people in this country who are locked out of power because of traditional structures. Um, you know, whether, whether that's people who do quite ordinary jobs, so they don't have the money to get involved in politics or whether that's people, you know, whether that's people who are black or with disabilities or women, quite frankly, and that the progressive idea is to build channels and structures that mean that those people can you know progress and get their own hands on the levers of power and that thing is the labor movement and the labor party you know, that is what it's for it's not just for um to create an elite set of politicians who've got uh socialist or social democrat or progressive 
ideas. It's about building that structure so that we bring everybody with us and more people have got a chance. And, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party for four and a half years, there or thereabouts. That structure has existed long before that. And if I have anything to do with it, it will exist long after because that idea is the right one. You don't, you don't seek power just to decide yourself. We need to build a structure that upends who has power in this country. And I wanted to stick with that idea. But some people felt that that structure had been taken over by people uh, who didn't have its best interests at heart uh, and that were going to lead it to defeat, and they did twice. Um, but not just that, they felt that perhaps at that point, the Corbyn project then looked, looked all-conquering. It looked as if though whoever it nominated as a successor would, would succeed, and that was some people's assessment. Obviously, as it turned out, um, the legacy basically didn't exist. It, it appears to have been built on sand, and it was remarkably really remarkable how easily Keir Starmer actually won that leadership election. But was that ever a fear of yours? Did you think, well, actually, this isn't just about Corbyn? Even, you know, even though you were definitely going to stay, did you think, oh, God, you know, when Corbyn goes, actually, we're going to have another Corbyn or Corbyn Mark II after this, and this is going to be a longer-term project? Or did you think, actually, was your assessment that it could all be kind of dismantled quite quickly? I think that if you start from a position of, like, we're going to you know, we're going to lose. What we're really talking about is how do we get a Labour government, right? Yeah. The, 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 big, the big question, and I guess, you know, pe- people who felt like it was, there was no way forward for the Labour Party, obviously, by, you know, by definition, must have agreed with the assessment that you just gave. And they felt that, you know, that they could get a better progressive or, you know, socially liberal or whatever their assessment was, they felt they could get that outside the Labour Party. Fine. I think actually you just have to ask yourself the question, like what is what is the progressive left-wing government that can win? And how do we make sure that we get a Labour leader who believes in that and who can push forward and who can win? And I think I just always focused on that challenge rather than you can convince yourself in politics that it's all going wrong and everything's going to get worse, but like if you've convinced yourself of that, then you might as well give up, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> there are you know, a lot like of people in politics. It'd be really, 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 really easy for me to think that every year in politics, since I was elected in 2010, things have got worse, not better, and that it will always be that way. But if that is what I genuinely believed, I, sh- I would be better doing something else. And I would say that to anybody. Like, if, you, if you're really that fatalistic and doom-laden about the future, then there are other jobs that would be more appropriate. Because that's not what the public need, right? We need to focus on how we can improve, how we can take like concrete steps so that the country or people's lives or you know get better. I'm gonna I'm gonna sound like all kind of hopey change, but that kind of fatalism just doesn't work in politics because you'll never move forward. You have to be realistic. You have to like assess risks properly and not convince yourself everything will be fine because there's no point just being Pollyanna either but you have to believe that things can get better if we do the right things. I guess part of it as well wasn't it is it kind of relates to the point you make that wanting a Labour government is that in that 2017 to 2019 parliament a lot of the threat of a Labour of a Corbyn-led government was real the, the possibility of it seemed real and a lot of people on the progressive wing of politics really did not want that to happen. So people within the Labour Party, actually, 
didn't want a Labour government. They thought Corbyn winning would be a disaster for a number of reasons, for the country and for the party. I mean, would you want any Labour government? You know, would you have been comfortable living with, with, with a Corbyn-led government, with the sort of international alliances he would have given Britain, that, that, that restructuring of our place in the world? Yeah, I think some people took the decision that you described, that they weren't, they weren't comfortable and happy with it, and those people took the decision that was right for them. Um, and, you know, and, and many of them left and, and that's, you know, everybody has to act according to their own conscience. I always think it's interesting how much um, people forget that um, the Parliamentary Labour Party in all of its glorious variety, including Jeremy Corbyn and me and others, group through the division lobbies and vote for the same things, like, you know, 99 occasions out of 100. Yes, Jeremy Corbyn is a known, like, former repeated rebel, particularly when Labour in government. But he voted for the vast majority of things. Um, and I guess my view is, um, if somebody asked me to choose between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, I know I can make that choice. And, and, and for and the I record? <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, the Labour Party is more than just one person. and. Yes, it was a very difficult time, but I knew what I thought about Brexit and about a whole range of different challenging issues and just tried to do my bit. You know, Jeremy always said in the leadership election, he said that leadership was never going to be about one person, it was going to be about all of us. So I just tried to live up to that and say what I thought and, you know. One of the big... It wasn't always easy, but, you know... It was definitely a learning experience, let's put it that way. I can imagine. Um, Keir Starmer gets a lot of the credit for incrementally, uh, as some people would say, improving Labour's policy on Brexit at, at the time and on a second referendum, at a time when um, a, a deal couldn't command any sort of majority on the floor of the House of Commons. But you did a lot of the work behind the scenes um, uh, as one of the whips in kind of cajoling and, and just pushing the party to a position where perhaps its own supporters were more comfortable with, with what it was saying. How difficult was that? Um, not, not really that difficult. Oh, come because on. It's, it's, just, it's just Excel. It's just spreadsheets. <laughs> oh, <laughs> don't really... demystify it. No. <laughs> Sorry, it's a lot less. I'm just spreadsheet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that it? <laughs> yeah. Um, one of my team, uh, one of my team once described, um, you know, the whipping process as uh, gossip and spreadsheets. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but I prefer the gossip uh, bit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's actually not. It's more the sort of the bit where most people kind of go a bit awry, and this was definitely the case with the ERG. I don't even remember, but at a certain point, they were briefing that they had, you know, huge numbers of rebels, and then yeah. they they had a vote, and it turned out not so much. Um, the bit where most people trip off is actually the counting bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, it, it wasn't difficult because the Labour Party more broadly, the Labour movement and the Labour Party more broadly, um, were, is and was uh, pro-European. Um, and by that, I don't, you know, I don't mean that people are obsessed with the internal structures of the European Union. Most of them aren't. I mean that people's lived experience has been positive in terms of what being part of the European Union has brought for us. And 
you know, people feel a sense of practical kind of solidarity and involved um, and feel involved. You know, I think of people um, uh, in in the automotive industry who've been part of works councils, you know, and met their opposite numbers in Germany and France and Spain and worked with them. Their lived experience has been that. And so there's kind of a natural um, affinity. And so it wasn't hard to bring people together you know, on that basis, really. So it was just spreadsheets. I mean, there must have been one or two people you must have had to have a word with or cajole or just remind. So organising in general, you know this, uh, you know this, right? When you're organising, people think it's about talking at people. Yeah. And it's really about listening. And then, you know, you, you decide kind of how to what you should advocate for or what you you know what you're pushing for once you understand where people are coming from and you know whipping in in the house of commons or anywhere else is just another form of organizing it's like um you spend a lot more time listening than you do talking and i know it's very boring to say that and people want this image of like you know the whips office i mean when i when i was in the whips office I spent more time listening to people about their childcare issues and trying to help and sort them out than I did ever, you know, I never threatened anyone with anything. No, I can't imagine you threatening anyone, but I guess it was more, I wondered how much, I suppose you've answered the question because the the parliamentary party was broadly sort of in a position anyway, but I wondered how much of a job it was actually winning hearts and minds during that period. Yeah, it just, it just wasn't because um people you know had understood you know what what was going on they thought that they thought that the tories wanted what has subsequently you know come to pass that that they wanted some sort of really quite hard brexit um and they were worried about that even people you know who felt like well we lost the referendum and you know being honest i with Heidi alexander created this campaign for single market membership because you know I thought that was maybe a way that we could bring people together like across the divide um and I think people were were really worried about that kind of Tory hard Brexit which you know even I think Keir said um a week or two ago you know like the issues on the table don't seem to be that challenging so what is really going on with the government that they can't just agree a deal at this point um and I think people were really worried about that and also had this kind of we're generally pro-European and so bringing people together to say like look the Labour Party has got a role to play here and that is about offering the government options you know we've got to kind of put forward put forward options of things that we could vote for whether that's customs union single market um, a confirmatory referendum all of that we just continually try to put forward options and show what there was that people would vote for. And unfortunately, uh, they never really uh, went for any of it. And I, I think there was a lot of talk and negotiations and discussion, but we never really got to that point of resolving it. And then, you know, the Lib Dems and others capitulated on Boris Johnson wanting a general election and the rest is history. All this seems like such ancient history now. It's all happened so quickly. Oh, it's crazy. So many it? events. It's only last year. <laughs> I know, it's like the 80s. 
Labour's in a different yeah. position now. It's got a new leader. It almost feels like the kind of spell has been lifted a bit uh, as of Labour's poll ratings and people are looking at the party and the leader in a different way now. Um, but during that last leadership contest, um, the person everyone was looking at at the start was Jess Phillips. Uh, and you were, you were running her campaign. You were, you were sort of in there with her. And people thought, well, maybe this is the first time in Labour's history they're going to elect a woman, and they didn't. Um, why didn't they? And what happened to Jess's campaign? Um, well, Jess had had important things to say. And Jess always says, you know, we should be frank and open and honest with the public. And I think that's a really important principle. And it's not to say, like, other people aren't, but rather just that, like, you've, you've got to trust the public that if you're up front with them, that they'll think, all right, OK, these people can take difficult decisions. And I think that's a really important principle and I was really proud to support her. Um, I think that I am the wrong person to ask why the Labour Party <laughs> is yet to elect a woman. I have campaigned for, um, yeah, I've campaigned for, for two and, and uh, you know, I voted Lisa one, Keir two. So I, I was really, really, even though we got four and a half percent of the vote, I actually was really proud of Liz Kendall when she stood. Yeah. You know, maybe, I don't know, you would know better than me. Why, why is it? What, what is it that, that men and women think that mean that campaigns haven't been compelling? I don't, I, it's well, really hard. I don't know. Based on my brief period working for the party, running selections and things, I think the Labour Party is sort of quite sexist. And I don't think that's exclusive to the Labour Party. I think most political parties are. I think you know, partly a reflection of sort of societal things, but... I was shocked working with the Labour Party at how old-fashioned it was. That it didn't feel like a kind of modern Blairite view of the world. Actually, it was really old-fashioned. And it's like, I've been here longest, it's my turn next. And the men have been there the longest and they expect... And it's just really dysfunctional. And this will be true of, I'm sure, every major political party in Britain. It's not an exclusive Labour thing. But other parties have chosen women to lead them and, and Labour hasn't. And I think there is a, there's a hangover from all sorts of different things. I think a lot of it is the kind of trade union history is that men, you know, they think that men lead and women don't. And I think also they do bully women into not standing sometimes in parts of the country. Like I think it's, there's over and there's, there's sort of like more subtle forms of it, but I think it's really bad. There's, there's a sort of deeper thing. Um, so there's a, there's a philosopher called Kate Mann who's written two like, really excellent, important books um, on feminism recently. And she was, she's, she's in America. Um, and her first book is written kind of in the, in the heat of the Hillary Clinton uh, election. And her theory, and I don't know if this is true or not, but her theory is that it is harder for a progressive woman than a conservative woman. Because... A conservative woman, you know, for example, Margaret Thatcher, a conservative woman offers no change to society, no change to the powers of structures of society. So they can present themselves as preserving that kind of power structure. So it feels like not a risk to the power that men and others hold. Whereas a progressive woman is like, not only a woman, and it feels like an aberration to some, but also is saying like, I'm not going <laughs> to stop in here. Like, there's going to be more of me. And 
you know, we're really going to change things. And I think that there's potentially something to that, that, that if you're a woman like Jess or Liz or Lisa or other, like, if you're a woman who says, the reason I want to lead is because I want to fundamentally change who has power. I do think that is a harder sell does, in but, some ways. But does that apply to the country or the party? Because Hillary Clinton was the Democratic nominee. Joe Swinson did lead the Lib Dems. Nicola Sturgeon has led the SNP and Scotland. Theresa May and Margaret Thatcher have led the Tories and the country. Labour's never even chosen a woman leader, and that's meant to be the most progressive party. So if it was, surely progressives would recognise the need for progress yeah no I, I i think it i think that that applies i mean i think you look at the way that hillary clinton was treated like and she was treated with a level of disdain that any if you if you wrote down her her qualifications that a man in her position just wouldn't have been Sim- similarly um uh theresa may you know Actually, I think Theresa May probably, you know, they're both Tories. I wouldn't vote for either of them. But Theresa May definitely had done more progressive things and was treated pretty badly, I think, by men in the Parliamentary Conservative Party. You know, they used to turn up at Prime Minister's questions and really barrack her. Um, I, I, I don't think there's a perfect answer to this, but I think that we have to kind of somehow get to... So one way or another, get to the root cause of it. I mean, there's not going to be a vacancy for a very long time. So we've, got a, we've got a good long while to work on it. Well, yes, roughly five years, depending on how things go. But I suppose if there's any sort of marked improvement, even if Keir Starmer doesn't win the next election, he probably gets another. What are we doing even predicting this nonsense? Because so much happens in politics. It's pointless trying to speculate the next election. Yeah, and the only, the only job in hand is, you know, winning. Yes, but that's a big old job for Labour folk, isn't it? Because it, it doesn't happen that often, or it hasn't happened no. for a while now. Not since 2005. Yeah. Yeah, it's, there is a lot to do. It's a big job. And it feels like we're at base camp at the moment. You know, we've got a lot of the right things in place, but we've, we've a long way to go and a, a lot to figure out. It was just, a, just on Jess. It, she was probably the most exciting candidate. At, you know, when, that, when the... Ele- when the Leadership election first gets mooted when Corbyn stands down. Jess was the one that kind of everyone was talking about. That was the, that was, she was certainly the one that friends of mine who aren't in politics was talking about. They were the ones that were saying, oh my God, Jess Phillips. Like it felt like there was a kind of crackle in the air around her in the way that the other candidates didn't have. Um, I just, I was slightly baffled as to why she didn't sort of start better or, or, what, or what happened like in the campaign. I think that basically Jess, you know, she she said what she, you know, wanted to say and, and she actually wrote a really interesting piece for The Guardian on the hostings and how, you know, she's the sort of politician who shoots from the hip and says what she thinks and that is, I think, why people like her. And in that hostings scenario where you have to give the line to the question, you know, and it's very staid and by the end of it all, like in those hostings, you know, I, I, I kind of did them a lot of them with Liz and I just remember by the end of it you know I could give Andy Burnham's answer on you know <laughs> defence policy <laughs> like yeah. I you know you end you end up just very um routine and very kind of in your zone because you just have to like um not make not make mistakes not take risks necessarily and you know I think Jess's view um 
it was that it didn't it wasn't her strong environment and you know i think it's a brave and mature politician who realizes that i mean i'm sure you know this isn't the last we've heard of jess phillips you know she's a star she's young uh, i'm sure if there, really Labour, if there is a Labour, if there is a Labour government, years and years. If we ever see a Labour government again, I'm sure she'll play a leading role in it. And who knows uh, what happens after Keir Starmer? But again, yes, uh, he's, he's got he's got probably a, a decent amount of time to, to go at at the moment. Um, so when Keir wins, then um, you, you want at least a first, Keir second. I mean, was that? Was that purely because you really want to see a female leader of the Labour Party, or, or were your politics closer to Lisa's than? Keir's or did no, you think just, Keir's probably going to win? I'm, I'm voting for women. <laughs> um, so I if mean, Rebecca Long-Bailey, if it had been no, Rebecca exactly. Long-Bailey. I was just going to say, I felt like that actually, you know, it's not absolute because I did feel that we needed to move on and if Lisa wasn't going to win, Keir would offer that. But um, yeah, I think Lisa's great as well. Like she's really, really good. She's really strong-willed and knows her own mind. She always stands up for what she believes in and she's a really clear thinker. So, you know, it, she was not a person it was hard to vote for. I mean, she's really... Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. What about you then? Because when you think of the, the, the sort of intakes, people are, people are standing for leadership contests now, having only been a, a Member of Parliament for, for a handful of years. You've been there for 10 years now. I know, I'm an of, old lady. You're one, of the, you're one of the stars of the hard right of the Labour Party. Oh, shit. That's banned. That's bored. Why, why didn't you put yourself forward? Um, I think you've just answered your own question there. I mean, you know... It was the chair, the former chair of progress, going to take over from Jeremy Corbyn. Great story, though, eh? Un- unlikely. But I suppose in the future, you know, you're, you're someone who's been, you know, you helped Jess with her leadership campaign, you've, you've helped others with theirs. There must come a point where you think, well, I, I want to be the one standing at some point. Well, I mean, some people might say that that makes me more of a backroom girl and, you know, that role that. I just want to win. I just want to win. And like, you know, at this point, at this point, after I, I was elected in 2010 well, in Wirral South, when everybody said that the Tories would win that seat, absolutely everybody told me that um, it, I was doing a pointless thing in in standing in Wirral South in 2010. You know, people who thought that the thing to do was to to stand somewhere where you'd win whatever, you know, a so-called safe seat. Um, 
Uh, although after the last election, there is no such thing as a safe seat anymore. Um, and and be, lots of people said that, you know, it was all very well wanting to stand in your hometown, but you're not going to win, forget it. And after kind of battling and, I mean, 2010 was a really hard election in January and February. It was mainly snow and ice, which you'll know is like, it's not the best environment for <laughs> sending out volunteers to knock on doors. Yeah. and then. You know, it, Gordon uh, was amazing in my eyes, but um, had a rough old time, one thing or another. Um, and, you know, that was, that was really hard. And then uh, Ed, Ed was elected. And similarly, you know, we had, we had quite the battle around 2015. Um, and then to have been through the past four years, like, I just want to do things that mean the Labour Party will win and be in government. And, like, whatever that is, I would, I would, if, if the job that I got to bring that about was delivering leaflets and that was the thing that I need to do, I'd do that. At the moment, you know, Keir's asked me to do sport and I'm doing it and I'm trying my very hardest to do it well. Um, but I will do whatever the job is to get labelled. You mentioned Gordon there. You were PPS to Gordon Brown for a bit. Yes. It, my it, first job in Westminster. So that was after the 2010 election? Yeah. Yeah. So What a weird time to be working with him. I mean, it was an amazing time to be working with him. So partly it was fantastic because he, so former leaders who stay in parliament normally get a PPS, you know, a sort of junior MP nominally so that they can be their link person with the parliamentary party. They can be their link person with, you know, if they're going to come in and do like stuff in the House of Commons, you're the person who can then talk to the clerks and others about just arrangements and that kind of thing. But actually really it's a bit of an apprenticeship. It's like, it, it's, it was amazing because I could spend time with him and ask him all kinds of stupid questions, which he, you know, was kind enough to, to answer. Um, and it was an amazing time because um, he was still doing lots of global things. You know, it wasn't that long after 2008. Um, you know, he, he had various kind of global roles, which was absolutely amazing. Um, went to New York to uh, do some stuff he, he's a kind of global leader in residence at New York University and like we kind of met amazing people and I learned a huge amount and you know we had phone hacking of course um, all of that so it was an amazing time and he's such a generous person in terms of as I say literally answering every stupid question I had and never sort of saying like really <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, really, I think I didn't necessarily have loads of confidence and he used to say to me, you know, um, you've been a counsellor, you know, and you've won, a, you've won a marginal seat against the odds. Like you should believe in yourself because you've done these things and other people haven't done those things and you should be proud of yourself and believe in yourself. And like, you know, obviously like my mom says that too, right? But he's <laughs> <laughs> not a former like, prime minister. It's like Gordon Brown, you know, yeah. saying those things. I can remember the first time I wrote an article um, about the economy and, and it was published and I sent it to him and he wrote me back an email and it, was, it said, very good, Ali, exactly what we should be saying. And I nearly cried with happiness. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, when you say you, you, you sort of... Um... Not that you lack confidence, but you sort of question yourself when you first came in. I mean, I suppose a lot of new MPs would do that. Um, but you've been—you've not just been a councillor; you've been deputy leader of Southwark Council. You'd experienced 
sort of senior positions in local government. You, as you say, got selected for a marginal seat, won a marginal seat. What was the source of the doubt? Or is it just that, you know, as any new MP would have, you're going into a new intimidating environment? Um, yeah, of course, all of that. Um, a new intimidating environment. I mean, the 2010 intake, there was lots of former special advisors and people who, you know, had been who'd been there like in number 10 and in the treasury. And, you know, I think that was that was quite intimidating. Um, I think also there is a kind of northern women thing. Like, I think, you know, we, we can be quite chippy and <laughs> sort of, you know, not assume that like we're going to be listened to in the way that I think a lot of people in Westminster basically assume when they open their mouth the people are listening mm-hmm. um, and, and I think it took me a little while to to figure out how to not constantly feel like I had to fight to be heard. And do, do you still feel like that and do you think that is actually a, a, a fair assessment of the culture there or was that just a lot of your own hang-ups? Um, I think both. Like, I definitely think I, I have my own hang-ups, but I think, um, I think it is part of the culture. And, and I see other younger women and other people in, like, Westminster still like an incredibly white place, particularly, like, you can change the members of parliament and the Labour Party's done really well in getting um, uh, black and, and Asian and other minority MPs elected and women as well. But the things that often you can't change quite so easily, the people behind the scenes that you don't see. And so it can still be quite an intimidating place. And I see other um, younger women and I always really want to say to them, like, just just fight really hard. Just don't just don't give up whatever you do. And like Harriet Harman is another person who's like really, I think, really important. And she always says, you know, I remember when I was first elected, her saying to a group of us, you know, don't be told, do not be told that you are new and you should sit there quiet and listen and learn. Say what you want to say and blaze a trail. Whatever else you do, just blaze a trail, change things. That's what you're here for. You know, and so we all like, yes, Harry. <laughs> and so that kind of like, I suppose, gave me a bit more confidence. But I still see younger women all the time looking like they're unsure whether they're being heard when they speak. It's so Interesting, the Harriet Harman thing, because quite a few previous guests have mentioned that. I think Rosie Duffield and, and Ruth Smith both, that Harriet Harman pep talk has obviously made yeah. such an impression on, on so many people. She's a proper mother hen. I mean, she's like the mother of the house now, and but she's always been that role, really. She's like, she's the sort of like person that everybody looks up to, because I think she's inherently pretty confident herself. Um, and has just been through so much and so now is just completely robust and just gives us she does gives gives a good pep talk quite a lot you know at what, what, we, what we're there for and what we're trying to achieve as well as being pps to gordon brown you've held a couple of other uh, quite interesting positions one of which was chair of the advisory committee on works of art for four years <laughs> What on earth is that? Like journeyman footballers. Like. <laughs> <laughs> what is the advisory committee on works of art, and what does chairing it involve? Well, so the speakers' advisory committee on works of art basically um, looks after the House of Commons uh, art collection. Oh, so it's like the internal, like the stuff that's on the wall in the committee rooms and things like that. That's right. That's right. So, so. Um, 
the House of Commons has an art collection that, you know, from from the year dot basically has the they've all acquired works of art. And the collection is quite odd in a way because it reflects the political priorities of um, you know, people in the past. So yeah. there's a lot of white men in it. They've got a lot of pictures of white men. Good to know. Obviously. Uh, the aristocracy. Yeah. Um and more recently, you know, we've been trying to collect um, uh, kind of slightly more diverse um, groups of people. Um, so one of the last things I did actually of chair, as chair of that committee was um, we acquired a sculpture of Equiano, who was one of the important um, uh, black leaders of the anti-slavery movement. And he actually uh, presented in Parliament uh, in the House of Commons on a number of occasions. And so we kind of broadened it out because traditionally the, the art collection is basically like people who've been MPs or members of the House of Lords. But actually, if, if you just stick to that group of people, then you don't get to see in the collection or on the walls of the House of Commons all the people who campaigned from outside Parliament to change the way that Parliament worked. Obviously, yes. like women and people who aren't white, working class people. So... And there's been a lot of work to kind of improve that that collection. Like the the, the collection, you know, it should have had a beautiful portrait of Nancy Astor taking her seat. But actually, um, uh, when that picture around the time of Nancy Astor becoming uh, the first MP taking her seat, a woman MP taking her seat, um, the picture itself was actually sold by the then cabinet because they didn't want a woman even on the walls. You know, they weren't that keen about having women and they didn't want them on the wall. So there was a lot of work for that committee to do to kind of like backfill and properly kind of take account of the full story of the history of the House of Commons. So, so that was what, did you have to hunt down the original or did you have a new one commissioned? So the curatorial team, the, the team of curators in the House of Commons, spent a huge amount of work hunting down um, pictures of people from the past and, you know, works that we might want to acquire. We, we acquired quite a lot of like the ephemera from the suffragette movement, so badges and flags and things like that, because there's so little in the House of Commons collection. It's actually relatively little in, in any collection because, funnily enough, the women campaigning as part of the suffrage movement did not take the time to have their portraits painted in oil. Yeah. So they had one or two things on the list before that. So, so there's actually relatively little. And, you know, what you realise, and, this, you know, it's Black History Month, um, uh, just now and I think what you realise is there's so much we've missed because we haven't told the full story to date so a lot of what we need to do is about telling the full, full story it's not about um, you know getting rid of stuff that has been collected in the past or that's in museums from the past it's just about telling the full story not a partial story which is often what you get and is it does the committee only consider portraits or is it abstract things you know because sometimes when you watch as i'm sure many people do um live committee hearings on uh, parliamentlive.tv <laughs> you see the kind of like pastel you know they could be in a hotel lobby type thing kind of slightly abstract pastely things on the wall sometimes it, did the committee cover stuff like that or was that just an interior design job when portcullis house was built <laughs> I, I think that I think the actual ones that you were referring to were commissioned for the building of Portcullis House, but the committee can 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 commission uh, anything. Um, the other big role that the committee has is commissioning election artists. We've had election artists, I think, about the past twenty years or so, and um, 
uh, I kind of was part of that that role on two occasions, and, Great. and that is a that is a fascinating job. And you know, you can commission anyone. You know, a uh, uh, kind of realist kind of portrait painter or uh, abstract um, artist. We also commissioned um, a work that I was quite I was quite, I'm quite proud of it. It's the first contemporary work to go into the Palace of Westminster. This is really niche art conversation, by the way. Yeah, it's cool, that. though. So, like, stop, me, stop me when it, it, it gets boring. But we commissioned an artist called Mary Branson, who created a work called New Dawn, which now um, it's a light installation above um, the entrance by St. Stephen's entrance in the Palace of Westminster. And if anybody visits there, um, as you walk through Westminster Hall and turn left to go towards Central Lobby, if you look above the door, there's yeah. um, a light installation that is... It's like a large sun-shaped uh, piece made up of small glass discs that are lit up in different colours. And the lights change throughout the day uh, according with the tide of the Thames. And the colours of all the glass discs are the colours that the different suffrage movements chose to represent their campaigns. And what we asked Mary Branson as the artist to do was to create as a piece that wasn't just about one person. You know, if you put up a statue of, of, a, of a person, particularly if it's from history, you know, most people won't connect with what that person looked like anyway if they're from history. Yeah. And also that's just one person's representation, but we commissioned her to create a piece that was the story of a movement, you know, a tide of change. And the way that the piece changes colour throughout the day and it kind of reflects like different moments in politics and how things change almost imperceptibly. It's really beautiful. And um, yeah, I, I'd be, so I'll, cool. send you, I'll send you a link with some pictures of the piece so that you can attach it to the, to the podcast notes. Cause That's it, a great it, idea. It's, it's, really, it's a really beautiful piece. And, and so I, I'm a big believer in contemporary art. You know, I think art moves with the times and we, should, we shouldn't just, I mean, we do commission a lot of, or not actually that many, but a lot of portraits of politicians are commissioned. Um, <laughs> some of them good, some of them not so good. And, uh, and that's fine. But I think, you know, art can tell a story of politics in, in a really new and exciting and innovative way. So just to be clear on where it is then, should people be visiting Parliament when all this is over in years to come, you walk up Westminster Hall towards, you know, where you go to Central Lobby, and then as you turn left, is it before the sort of wooden and glass doors? It's above the wooden and glass doors. So okay. basically, so you know where you go up, so you go in, you're in Westminster Hall and then you go up one flight of stairs, which yeah. is where Nelson Mandela and Barack Obama spoke from. Yeah. And the, it's got the gold plaques on the floor. Where Charles I was tried. Exactly. Good parliamentary knowledge there, Matt. And then you, you turn left and there's another set of stairs. Yeah. If you look upwards at that point, you will see this beautiful light installation. Great. And there was nothing there before. It was just like a patch of empty like parliamentary wallpaper. And so we commissioned the artist, basically the first thing we did, to, did was say, like, go around Parliament and see and find a spot. And she found this kind of um, empty bit of wall. And it's really amazing as well, because it is above the doors that suffragette campaigners smashed with hammers. So they used to try and um, get into Parliament. As most people know, um, Emily Davidson, you know, stayed overnight in the broom cupboard, Tony Benn put plaque up, yada, yada, yada. Um, but that was part of a big campaign of entry into the House of Commons and they used to smash the windows and things like that. And 
this piece is above the doors and it's obviously really symbolic because it's about you know like women's rights to be allowed in the place I, so cool. I, will, I will take you there and maybe we should make a video or something of it. Yeah, that's a great know. idea. But we'll make it COVID safe so, or whenever, you know, whether it's safe and um, uh, sensible to do so. Um, you wrote an article this week, Alison, for, for Grazia that, that was one of the most powerful things I've read in years. Um, and something I didn't know I, and was kind of embarrassed that I didn't know. You, you were talking about your sort of own psychological issues with your, with your body and your perceptions about how you appear and, and how that affects you. Um, a really personal thing for you to write and put out there. Um, I, I mean, I'm guessing that you've had sort of lots of messages from well-wishers and that I, I hope it's been a positive experience. I mean, has it, do you think, been, uh, do you feel good that you've put it out there and, and that you've kind of, I suppose, shown that vulnerability? Well, I wrote it in a way probably a little bit out of anger, actually, that um, I think that there's a, there's a general sense, I think, that at times the government, you know, obviously we all need to do whatever's necessary to deal with COVID. It's a deadly virus and, and you know, we need to do what everybody needs to do, all that they can. Um, but I think there's a little bit where the government has slightly at times slipped into blaming people. Mm. And I, I feel around the whole body shape issue that there's a lot of judging that goes on um, of people that is not necessarily that good for their mental health. And I suppose, I think that a lot of people really internalize that self disgust and condemnation about like what their body is like. And, you know, that's just, that's not good for your mental health. And like, um, you know, I, I'm not ashamed at all of, uh, I've been through periods of depression, I've had therapy, which has been really useful. Um, I'm not afraid or ashamed of talking about that. I guess the thing for me was like, we were missing that if you go around telling people, you know, if you are fat, you will, you know, you will get ill and it will be your fault and it will be all on you. If we go around telling people that, that feeling of shame and stigma will just get worse and people will turn, turn away because they don't want to be made to feel or they already feel bad about themselves enough what we need is a kind of inclusivity. And it also, that article came from a really positive place, which is that I have my team in Westminster, who I play football with, and our coach, Josh, who is just amazing and so completely inclusive. Um, and I have my team in Wirral, Wirral Valkyries, and my coaches, Kathy and Anna, who are similarly just absolutely brilliant and would never say, you know, um, would never be, aggressive or hostile you know in their manner of coaching because they know that you have to include people and make them feel like they're enjoying it and make them feel good about being there and so the thing that I'm the point that I was trying to make was like like I grew up thinking that I was the only one who was just completely I don't even know what the word is just just I felt very ashamed of myself and I thought that that was mainly a thing that I felt and I have come to learn that I wasn't necessarily as bad at sport and physical activity at school as I thought I was but I just didn't have the confidence in myself to just put push a bit harder and to just go for it whereas because I've experienced good coaching and like inclusive sport and a, and a way of participating where like to be honest you know 
I played rugby for the first time the other week. And the first thing they said to me was like, well, we have to have people of all kinds of body shapes in rugby because you need people to do different kinds of jobs. And, you know, it's, it's, that's why it's such a good sport for women to do because it's really empowering and gets rid of a lot of those, um, uh, you know, body stigma and shame issues. And this is like a kind of bloke rugby coach who understands feminism and how it should work, you know, and he's really, really understood it. And so, as I say, partly I was a bit angry with some of the conversation about blaming people. Then, you know, I've also had this really positive experience of sports coaching that is much more inclusive. And I sort of wanted to just say, like, we can do this in a different way. We can do, like, health in a better way. And I hope that I communicated that. I mean, it is difficult. and it. You know, I do kind of live with it. Like, I don't love being in front of a camera for that reason, but I just try to get on with it. You know what what I found most interesting about it was the the sort of start of it where you say that the moment you're on stage or you're in front of a camera, in your head you're thinking to yourself, you know, about your weight and your appearance. Watching you, and I see you on telly a lot and I see you in Parliament a lot, I would never think that that was your internal monologue. You always seem so composed and calm and collected. So even in a way, I guess I'm trying to reassure you that even if you think at times when, when that's going through your head, as an audience member, I would never have picked up on that. And I never, I think most people take people on face value and just listen to what they're saying. And you always come across as so confident and composed that I don't think anyone would ever imagine that was going through your mind. Yeah, that, I guess. Um, I mean, this is this is quite this is quite a hard one because. I mean, you're quite you're sort of interested in politics and sort of quite well disposed, and you know, that that is fine. I mean, I would go back to what I said before. Actually, like it can still be quite a battle for um, people in society about whom assumptions are made. Um, to be heard you know I served on treasury select committee in another one yet another one of my many uh myriad roles in my journey my life of uh, politics over the past few years as you know I spent time on the treasury select committee and you know I remember going to going to a dinner uh, as you know as a member of the treasury select committee and I was there at this dinner and there's loads of finance people and banking people and like I met meet this guy um and he says, oh, what, you know, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, I'm Arsenal Govern, I'm, you know, MP, I'm a member of the Treasury Select Committee. And he just turned to me and said, and what did you do to qualify for that role? And like, I wouldn't oh say God. that stuff is like hugely common. And frankly, the older I get, the easier it gets. But, you know, all of that stuff does go in. Mm. And I, I, think, I think women and people, you know, who've got those structural issues, um, you know, spend a lot of time with that stuff going in uh, that they're not, um, they're not, they're not to be heard or to be trusted in the same way as other people are. And so you do internalise that again, sort of like from a philosophy point of view. Like, who is trusted in the testimony that they give is a much more profound issue than I think that we ever give it credit for. It's what underlies a lot of those power structures is the fact that when some people get up and speak, they will be trusted and believed in much more than other people. And that yes. is one of the things that we have to change. You I know, I... Also, with stuff like that, 
that is a reflection of his own prejudices and you know shortcomings and i think in life and i'm sure it's kind of the same thing you said about being a new mp and i think when you come from sort of backgrounds like ours you kind of you presume that everyone else is cleverer and that if someone has a nicer accent than you then they must know more than you um Actually, the longer yeah. you go through life, you realise that's not the case. And a lot of people are just really good at blagging. And a lot yeah. of that kind of outward stuff that people get from private school or good universities or whatever, a lot of it is just a confidence trick. They don't actually know any more than you. And a lot of the time, they know a lot less. They're just far more confident. And they exactly. know how to exactly. keep you. Exactly. It's all just exactly. an illusion. You know, and, and exactly. actually then, that's a the kind of way of taking the power back. You know, I've had, obviously I've not been an MP and sat on the Treasury Select Committee, but I've had you know well-heeled people be very rude to me unless we were you know well-heeled people and and if you do have a perception of yourself at a particular time in your life those things do confirm it and i don't think you're immune to being affected by those sorts of comments however experienced or old you get but i think once you kind of realize that that's what life is <laughs> there's something yeah. remarkably freeing about it there, there, there is there is and it's why i do think university this is like off a bit of a tangent but why i do think university is important for working class kids because I think that's a really important place where you realise, like, hang on a minute, you know, um, and I think it can, that sort of like three years or whatever can really sort of change people's self-perception, which is not to say everyone should go to university and Lord knows, you know, there's very, very good routes to get brilliant careers without university. But I think there's a sort of profound moment where if you come from an ordinary background, where you hear people putting their hand up and asking, like, the most nonsense obvious questions and you think no no that's just a posh accent you've got there yeah. that's not actually more intelligence than me and uh, and that is it's really good for people part of the um reason you wrote the article or one of the things that is in containing the article is your your um involvement in sport england's this girl can campaign which you've been involved in yeah. for the past five years which uh tries to inclusively promote women's participation in sport so that was a kind of there's a kind of call to action at the end of the article that's, that's, um, that's good. The This Girl Can campaign, um, if, if people are listening to this and want to get involved in it, like what does it actually do? And, and is, it, is it available in every part of the country? It, it is, it is. Um, so uh, This Girl Can started life as, a, as an advertising campaign. Um, sport England basically looked at the figures and were like, well, there appears to be a lot less women doing sport than men, and we should probably fix that. So they actually did some really smart analysis about what the barriers were to women doing sport. And it's all of that stuff we were just talking about, basically. Um, and actually, one of the amazing things in response to the article is I genuinely always feel like I am massively on my own in feeling like this sense that like everybody's just condemning what I look like and um and it turns out that pretty much everyone feels that way yeah. really so so um uh, this girl cameras are just about, about addressing that and saying like you know actually you don't you don't need to be good um and you don't need to look like any particular way you can look like whatever you want to look like and and you can do it your way the main thing is to take part and have fun and enjoy yourself and feel uplifted and empowered by it and so it started life as an advertising campaign and now it's kind of like a social media um movement i guess um and if people want to to get involved then you know twitter and instagram are your friends here and uh, you know there's lots of different sports groups around the country and kind of take that and you know make 
pictures and films and videos and yeah so it's 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 about a state of mind i would say this girl can it's about understanding that like actually even like the really really best athletes like it still feels hard for them it's they still they they just get better at dealing with those those barriers and actually we all have those barriers and you know people should feel like that they have a right to feel included and i really believe in that and you know whether it's what's happening with women's football or rugby or other sports where women traditionally have been seen as not really a part of it or just like just stuff like going for a run like we just as a country we just need to have a really inclusive attitude because otherwise you know we'll keep all of these problems of people's health and fitness being not what it should be you're absolutely right as well about people's relationship with and perception of their own body i think most people don't like their own, you know, whether they're whether they're fit or thin or whatever whatever body shape like my relationship with my body I, my, my weight is all over the place i'm always putting on and then losing weight and i can't my main problem is i just love food too much and i can't figure out a way to like reduce my appetite so then i try and exercise it off but i kind of I really beat myself up. I did the London Marathon 10 years ago, and I remember um, I, I trained with a mutual friend of ours, Will Sherlock, and I would run, and I would, catch uh, my, I would catch my reflection, and as I was running, I would go, you fat bastard, to, like, to myself. And like, my girlfriend will say, I can hear you like cursing yourself sometimes when I'm like, exercising, going, oh, you fat. You know, and you, it, it, it kind of can laugh about it, and, and I, I, I don't think it sort of affects me too deeply or anything, but... I think a lot of people feel that way. You know, they see themselves and they think, Ugh. and it, it's partly that we live in a society where certainly on social media and on telly, like shows like Love Island and, and, and some of the stuff I watch, like some people's bodies that they show off are like so almost like superhuman that you think, is that what I'm meant to look like now? And it doesn't bother me too much, but I don't know. Does that have an effect or is that, is that almost like blaming video nasties for things in the past? Like old rap music? Well, do you know, do you know, um, Stella Creasy and uh, Jess Phillips have tried to explain Love Island to me. I still can't figure out, like, how it's a competition. <laughs> what is it? What is it? How do you win? I don't understand. You fall in love and then you win. Like, how, how is that a competition? Anyway, that's an aside. Um, that's a good point. I, I think there's a public vote element to it. Yeah, people get voted on. Yeah, but, like, like, the electoral brain in me is like, yeah, but how... How do you how do you organise? Yeah, what are the marginals? Where do we where do we redeploy? Exactly, like, <laughs> what would our com strategy be? <laughs> um, so, um, uh, whereas their answer is, it's just telly, Ali. It's just telly. Calm down. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I honestly don't know. I, I think so. People like Chris Elmore and other colleagues have done a lot of work on social media. And the impact of that and permanently like people permanently ingesting images and i think that's that's definitely a part of it and i think that there's a whole like kind of um there's a whole kind of policy infrastructure that we probably need that we haven't got around some of the new forms of media um but equally like does anybody think that when social media wasn't a thing or when love island wasn't on the telly people didn't have body image issues of course they did so I don't, I don't really think it can be the root cause. And for me, that's why like the sport thing kind of is really important because 
physical activity is really good and going to the gym and you know doing stuff on your own is really good but I think people are always going to be a bit locked in their own heads about it whereas the whole for me physical it's not like you've got physical health and your mental health and you need to look after them it's like one is connected intricately with the other and I find or I have found I started playing football uh, when I was 36 37 um uh, and I'm 39 now so it's quite a new thing for me but the thing that really amazed me that I never really understood before about team sport is because you have to think about it and you have to you communicate with other people all the time and you have to think about it it's it's a massive distraction and it's the experience of being in a lovely team of people who mostly you kind of get to like and you feel a sense of solidarity with so it's really really good at dealing with mental health issues, feelings of isolation or whatever. And at the same time, you're doing that physical activity that your body needs. So it's just like absolutely magical because you, that interaction between being with those people who you like, feeling good, doing physical activity is amazing, which is why I think women really, really, really need team sport. You know, this, this idea that, you know, health for women is about kind of pounding it out on the treadmill um and really zeroing in on those numbers you know that whether it's the bmi or whether it's you know how long it takes them to run 5k you know a lot of women do you know they kind of obsess about targets that they set themselves because they're desperately trying to achieve against the backdrop of life that's not always set up to be that easy whereas women in team sport situations i think get a bit of solidarity and company and you know those good mental health things and that's why I, I don't I don't think that any plan we have on this should just advocate for fitness in a simplistic sense I think it's got to be about sport and getting that's people involved in but I'm I fall into that group of um the numbers I'm like I've got to do and I keep a record in my diary of like I've done 90 minutes on the bike today I burned this many calories I'm definitely one of those people that like measures how far for how long and at what time Rather than, I think part of the problem is I'm just too injury prone. If I play football, just so like my ankle goes on my knee. Whereas if I'm just on an exercise bike, I'm like, no one's going to get near me. I can watch a film and that's fine. Yeah, and like I'm, you know, I'm not a fitness coach, um, and you know, the numbers are really the numbers are really important. My point is just how are we also taking care of people's mental health? How yes. are we also giving people a sense of solidarity and company in life? You know. Uh, and it is more pleasurable. The, the kind it, of work we, that people have done on loneliness. Um, Tracy Crouch, um, who we talked about before, was the first loneliness member uh, minister in the government. Um, you know, in in honour of Joe Cox and her campaign on loneliness. And I think I think you can do both. I think you can help people understand where they need to be in terms of their own fitness, but just try and figure out how to do it in a way that makes them feel a part of something. But I'm not advocating you go and injure yourself on the football field, Matt Ford, so. Thank you. Um, of, <laughs> you can't hold me responsible for that. One of the stereotypes about five-a-side football teams is that you play five-a-side on, I don't know, Wednesday or Thursday or Tuesday night, and then everyone basically goes and gets drunk. Um, is that the case with you guys? Do you all pile into the red line afterwards? Uh, no. No. <laughs> um, no. Uh, we're very, we're very kind of social with each other, and that's what's nice about yeah. it. 
um, that's not the case. My team and we're all, that's, that's definitely, you know, not the case, mainly because, like, we've got to get home to the kids. And yeah. stuff. Oh, Alison, this has been, this has been absolutely superb. Um, thank you so much for it. We just covered so much and I could have covered so much more. Um, you, you, could, you could have asked me about the economy and everything. I know. Next time. Next time we'll talk about the economy. Alison McGovern, thank you very much. Thanks. Well, there you go, Alison McGovern. So difficult, even though she'd written that article. It's a really difficult subject to talk about, especially just in a one-on-one interview where these are delicate subjects and they're they're difficult to talk about and um, they're not always easy to kind of broach in in a conversation. You know, when you're writing this stuff down, you're... You can order your thoughts and go back and delete and, and finesse it. When you're in a conversation about it, these, you know, you're acutely aware that you're, you're handling a subject that is that is very important and uh, has to be talked about in the right way. So um, just the work that Alison has done with the This Girl Can campaign, and I've put a link to that as well in the blurb, uh, just as well as her own, you know, the, the, the experience of speaking out about it and the help that that will have given, that will undoubtedly have given people um, is just so impressive. Um, so there you go, Alison McGovern, um, a, a current star, but I sense perhaps an even bigger star in the future. Um, my book is out next week on the 8th of October. So pre-order it while you can. You can get signed copies uh, for Blackwells. Um, I've put a, a link to that, um, which uh, the, the, they're selling very well. I've had to sign a few more, which is, uh, which is a pleasant surprise. So get them while you can. Uh, I'll put a link to that, the signed copy. And on the 13th of October, I'm doing a book launch um, online, uh, hosted by Alistair Campbell, which at the time I was like, it'd be a great idea, get Alistair Campbell to do it. And now I'm just thinking, oh, God, he's going to give me hell. But um, it will be hell for your amusement. Um, so I've put a link to that event as well. And there's two separate links, one which includes a signed book, and the other, if you've already bought the book, you can just get a ticket uh, to the event. Um, so that all those... Uh, links are there and of course should you like political comedy and if you listen to this podcast there's a good chance you will spitting image comes back this saturday on britbox and um as you may have heard i'm one of the writers on it and i'm also voicing donald trump boris johnson and keir starmer so um that's very exciting so tune in uh, to see that i realize this is now just like me flogging merch um but i've got to make a living so um please buy the book and um thank you for downloading this Thank you so much for downloading it. And if you can, and I know I ask every week, but if you can find within you just a couple of, uh, sounded like William Hague, if you can find within you the generosity of spirit to leave an iTunes review, preferably five stars with a glowing comment, I would be very happy indeed. And I commend this statement to the house. ta Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365 day returns.